Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Hi, welcome to CRISPR Cuts. Our guest today is Andre Watson, CEO and co-founder of Ligandan. In their own words, this company is working to make gene therapy real. So hi, Andre. Hi, Manakshi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Let's begin this episode by talking a little bit about your educational background. Sure. So I was studying biomedical engineering at RPI when I decided that drug and gene delivery was this big missing piece within medicine. So we had all these tools for sequencing the genome, for understanding what causes various diseases, and yet, even with the advent of tools like CRISPR, there weren't effective ways of actually reprogramming the molecular information to rid the body of the given pathology. So I became very fascinated with how do you actually deliver genetic cargoes and different genetic engineering tools to the appropriate places in the body uh, and actually create a platform for being able to target specific cells. So I spent two years during my undergrad building what ended up being the first proof of concept for delivering a guided nuclease, such as CRISPR, mm-hmm. into targeted cells without using a virus. So the first work really centered around delivering talons, which were kind of a precursor to CRISPR and are still uh, quite a good gene editing tool. We did a series of studies all the way to in vivo mouse studies where we injected adult mice with bone fragility disease with the gene editing constructs carried by these nanoparticles into their bone marrow. And we saw that we could make thicker bones. So around 2013, I bought a one-way ticket to Silicon Valley, and it was really a choice between do I go get my PhD, spend another six years in academia, or do I take the data and the intellectual property and sort of the knowledge that I have in this burgeoning industry and create a missing piece for delivery. So we've been working on creating iterative delivery systems for the last five years through Ligandal. Right. So that's how you basically ended up founding Ligandal after your undergrad, just deciding not to continue in academia anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Great. That's a big step going from undergrad right into a company. But I guess the interesting part here is Really, the uh, technique which you developed, or proof of concept which you developed right during your undergrad studies. So, just to elaborate a bit on that, Lagendal focuses on unique delivery of gene therapies, right? So, the first question there would be that, why do we have a delivery problem? Maybe you could elaborate on why was this even a gap that needed to be filled? Yeah. Well, I think going back to even the 70s, you had all sorts of chemotherapy drugs like docetaxel, paclitaxel, and at some point, it was discovered that you could package up these chemotherapy agents into nanoparticles and use them to really get better efficacy. So you could now dose a patient with less chemo drug or the same amount of chemo drugs, but it would distribute to the cancerous tissue. The problem that didn't get solved is creating delivery systems that actually target specific cells and tissues and can bear any number of payloads. So for the longest time, 
delivery systems were kind of these passive materials that would package up what you want delivered, and you just put it in the blood and, you know, look at where it's distributing. But the materials themselves weren't necessarily smart. And when I say smart, I mean being able to target a specific cell, or in the case of delivering a genetic construct, also getting into the nucleus of the cell. So you need both of these pieces, and you have many barriers and many stages that you need to get past. So you need to survive in the blood. You need to get the targeted cells to actually eat those constructs. And then you need to protect the delicate genetic payload until it reaches its desired location. So there are many places where things can go wrong. One thing that we found was that a lot of these companies that were focusing on gene editing, even dating back to the late 90s with Sangamo and then Selectus, Precision Biosciences, now we have all these CRISPR companies like Editas and Telia, CRISPR Therapeutics, but these companies all continue to put the payload first. So in other words, you have CRISPR, you form a company, and then you figure out, okay, where can I get CRISPR to? Where is the industry capable of delivering it? So people end up sort of reusing and recycling different delivery systems that have been used for a number of years without actually focusing on the core advancement of delivery, which has resulted in there being very limited addressable tissue and cellular targets. So, in other words, if you want to deliver something to the liver, that's easy. We've been able to deliver things to the liver for a very long time. Mm -hmm. But if you want to target a specific cell in your blood or target a specific cell in your pancreas, that sort of work has only been more recent when it's dealing with genetic constructs. So, really, there was this opportunity in 2013 when I moved out here none of the CRISPR companies had formed yet. So we didn't have Editas. We didn't have these other companies. We just had the first nature papers. And at the time, if you actually Googled gene editing nanoparticles back in 2013, there were two results. And they were getting you know sub-1% efficiency. And they weren't even using CRISPR. So really, that was the opportunity. It was seeing that we had a rapid advancement in a number of publications and a number of companies trying to do gene editing, but no one was focusing on how do you actually deliver those constructs. And it was just assumed that if you put enough money into a CRISPR company, they'll just figure it out. Well, it's been five years, and in that time, it hasn't been figured out. So once again, you can get to the liver. You can inject something in the back of the eye. You can put some stuff on some cells in a dish. But when it comes to actually saying, I want to reprogram this specific cell or tissue in this specific organ using a specific construct, that is a very long, intensive process. And at this point, you know, I was just at JP Morgan meeting with a number of gene editing companies and immunotherapy companies and so on and so forth. And keep hearing that there is really this critical bottleneck even today in terms of developing the vectors for delivery, such that if you actually want to go out and even have a virus designed or use in a dish for your T-cell immunotherapy or whatever you're developing, it's going to take you a minimum of 12 months just to get past the backlog in the waiting period for one of the handful of companies that actually can develop these viruses for you, and then another six months to manufacture, at least. So there is a huge demand for delivery systems, but the supply isn't there. So if you can create cost-effective delivery systems that are non-viral, that can target specific cells, and deliver a range of constructs, you're creating a lot of value for the industry at large and also creating very valuable therapeutics if you can get them to market. 
I see. That's actually very interesting and makes a lot of sense to actually think about where after developing all these gene therapies, how would they even get into the body? Now, one question that I had was that with ligands, which will specifically bind to receptors on particular type of cells, this is a very smart way of, let's say, tailoring gene therapy to get into a particular type of cells. But then that also means that every therapy would have to be tailored and it cannot be like a general platform which can be used for all kinds of therapies, right? So is that the bottleneck for you right now to basically establish great delivery methods for each type of cell or is there a way to make it uniform for any type of cell, let's say? Well, that's exactly what we've really developed at Ligandum. So the idea is that anytime you have a cell, it's going to have a certain profile of receptors. Mm-hmm. So we have two pieces to really develop in our platform. One is knowing that you can actually package up the given payload. The second is knowing that you can actually get that payload to the target itself. So we develop both of those things. We create an iterative process to take a range of polymers that are actually based on peptides and condense them around the given payload that you want to deliver, such as CRISPR, so that you form a stable package. And then we decorate that package in targeting ligands. And we have a discovery platform for really rapidly creating ligands. So we can take an unspecified cell, and based on the knowledge of which receptors it has, we can create targeting molecules, targeting ligands, faster than anyone else. So we've created an advancement, not just in the delivery system and the packaging, but also in the targeting and being able to create ligands in hours or days instead of months. I see. That's excellent, actually. And if correct me if I'm wrong, but Ligandal is the first company to basically use these kind of cell-specific biomolecules for targeting gene editing materials inside cells, right? Exactly. And we're basing these ligands entirely off human-derived proteins. So we're using really biology to interact with biology rather than trying to discover things from scratch. Right. And then one follow-up question to that would be, why are others not able to do it? What is the main technical hurdle you're in what you are able to achieve versus why are there not many companies popping up trying to do the same thing or even managing to do the same thing? Well, there have been a few companies that have appeared that are trying to do gene editing delivery, and they typically either don't have the targeting component and they're just trying to do local injections, or they're using some form of, for example, an aptamer for targeting cells. And the thing with using aptamers or antibodies is you have to do a lot of screening and a lot of development to get your targeting molecule actually made. And then you can stick it onto a nanoparticle. But the issue with the gene editing and the gene constructs is that you need to actually get them into the nucleus of the cell after you get there. You need to survive the endosome. So what we've seen is there's been a lack of innovation in the fundamental delivery systems. So a lot of people are trying to use liposomes or lipid nanoparticles that you basically create like a soap bubble with your package inside and then you can decorate it in targeting elements. But what we're doing is actually screening a much broader array of gene delivery materials than we've seen anyone publish or even talk about. I see. Now, you mentioned this before, but recently there have been a huge component of computational biology in any 
let's say generalized plat- biology platform so which was not probably the case before now is compute yeah. are computational tools uh, an important part of the work that you do at lagendal as well are they mixing in well with biology now yeah i mean the computational component is very important but it's not all encompassing so i think one of the things with the idea of a computational platform is you can simulate a lot of things but at the end of the day you're going to have to interact with biological systems which are highly dynamic complex and really are more amenable to brute forcing methods of screening so you need to find the right balance between simulating things and actually performing the experiments so that's the balance that we've tried to find at legendal where there is a simulation component so we do look at creating ligands that haven't been used before but we're starting from native proteins so we're not starting completely de novo trying to make sequences that didn't exist before that's right. the first piece the second piece is actually making the nanoparticles and there are many components that go into making a nanoparticle and in our case we use kind of these electrostatic interactions which are charged interactions between negatively charged things such as the gene that you're delivering and positively charged things such as the peptide sequences that actually package up that payload what we've actually developed is a software interface for rapidly designing those experiments and having robots perform those experiments so we tie the computational elements which are really simulating designing the targeting molecules to the physical studies of making nanoparticles and that is something that also much like biology you can't fully predict So we need to actually screen hundreds of things but we end up iterating and finding patterns that work. And once we lock in those patterns and find the things that are consistent in their formulations for the size of those particles, how well they package the materials, etc., we then do a biological study and look at how well those nanoparticles perform in a cellular context. So every time we perform an experiment, we can take the top 10 or 20% of performing groups so like those out and then the rest are iterated around so it gets better and better that's really the novelty of our approach is we're not trying to just take an off the shelf delivery system fix something inside of it and hope that it targets the right cell we're actually tuning and fine tuning all of the aspects of how you'd want to interact with the cell down to the level of you know what enzyme is going to break apart my nanoparticle is it going to go to the nucleus is it going to release quickly or slowly is it going to be a big particle or a small particle is it targeting one receptor or another all of those things right right i understand there are several steps and optimization cycles until you get to a point where something actually works as well as you want it so now that you have this platform and you are finding ways in which you can have even more efficient delivery system how far are we from personalized medicine what is the gap right now Well, I think there are different degrees of personalized medicine. I think what we're going to see sooner rather than later is diagnostically responsive immunotherapy. So, taking a T cell, for example, and reprogramming it to attack a specific kind of cancer cell, because the FDA has already approved the first gene therapy for immune oncology as of Novartis's Chimera in 2017, we're now looking at an exponential advancement in the field around autologous cell therapies. So in this case you have to take an immune cell, a T cell that normally surveys your whole body and you have its 
huge variety of these so-called T-cell receptors that each respond to different antigens or different markers that shouldn't belong in your body. So that could be a virus, that could be some sort of bacteria, or it could be a cancer that you just developed with its own set of mutations in it that results in new sequences of proteins on the surface. So our immune system can recognize all of these things. With immunotherapy, the goal in the case of T-cell immunotherapies is to take those T-cells and to give them targeting characteristics where you genetically engineer the cell so that it can stick to a specific kind of cancer cell or a specific kind of virus. So there are companies now trying to focus on the personalized aspect of that. One of them is called Pact Pharma, for example, where they're actually sequencing your tumor. They're identifying which neoantigens or new peptide sequences that tumor has. And then they're actually building this microfluidic platform where they'll pull out your cells and circulating T cells will go through this chip and they will stick to those peptide sequences that you identified in that patient. And the T cells that get pulled out are the ones that already have recognition for that neoantigen. Then you have to sequence those T cells, identify which T cell receptors they have, and then you have to genetically engineer a larger population of that person's T cells to have the same sequence. So that's a complex process, but that's kind of the first foray that we're seeing into personalized gene editing immuno-oncology. We're also going to see a lot of stuff in the genetic disease space. So, you know, you have a disease like sickle cell disease where you have a single base pair that results in the disease. That's a pretty easy off-the-shelf fix if you can actually deliver to the right cells or even perform an autologous cell transplantation. But then you have diseases like beta thalassemia or von Willebrand disease where you have hundreds of different mutations underlying even a single genetic disease where, yes, it is one gene that's affected, but it can have many, many different mutations that result in the pathology. So how do you treat those diseases? You're going to have to actually stratify patient populations within that single disease into different gene editing modalities if you're going the gene editing route. And then you have more complex multifactorial diseases also. So, you know, we're going to be treating the disease of aging itself, where you're going to say that an older person isn't just sick because they have Alzheimer's disease. You're going to say that they're sick because they got older and maybe there's a comprehensive set of things that you need to do to reverse the biological age of the human. So that could take decades to really mature. But as it matures, we're looking at actually saying, here's the diagnosis. Here is the set of genetic changes that I'd like to affect in the patient, whether they are temporary or permanent. And here are the tissues in which I'd like to create those changes. Right. So I think delivery is a bottleneck to being able to do that because you can't always do a cell therapy. You can't always just target the liver. You're going to need to actually predictively say, I'm going to fix XYZ cells, tissues, and organs with A, B, C, D, E, F, G, different genetic traits. So the types of therapies which you mentioned, for example, a T-cell therapy, these are ex vivo therapies, right, that you would take, or at least for now, you would take uh, immune cells from patients and then edit them outside the body and then reinsert them back into the patient. Would you say that delivery systems are, say, more of a bottleneck or are more critical for in vivo uh, gene therapy? Well, certainly in vivo is a huge bottleneck. But we're seeing that the bottleneck is even in the ex vivo market. So what I mentioned earlier about it taking 
12 months to even get past the wait list for manufacturing a virus, mm-hmm. that applies to ex vivo as well. So, you know, we're finding that from a demand perspective in the industry, ex vivo delivery systems are still very valuable. But of course, the eventual goal is to do in vivo. And we do have select applications that we're developing data sets for within the in vivo context as well. So it's a fine balance, but from a regulatory perspective, being able to start with a self-therapy approach where the FDA is already comfortable with the end product so that you're putting the cells back in, that is a good point to show that your delivery system is safe and effective. And also, it's something that there are a number of partners where you could have up to 100 or more different genetic modifications that you're performing in these cells. And the goal is just to provide the supply chain and the manufacturing for all those therapies as far as the delivery systems go. So what we're finding is that, you know, in theory, it seems easy to just modify a gene in a cell and put it back. But in reality, there are many steps to that cell therapy process. So you have to take the cells out. You have to use nucleofection or electroporation where you expose the cells to a big electromagnetic field in order to permeabilize the cell membrane. And that's where you can introduce your CRISPR or whatever tool you're doing the gene editing with. But CRISPR performs cuts. It doesn't perform insertions. So you're basically using molecular scissors to, to create a double-stranded break at some part in the genome. You then need to actually insert a new DNA sequence into that spot. So the industry is typically using electroporation for the deletion part. And then they're manufacturing viruses to insert the genes back. And within that process, you also have to have very specialized conditions for growing those cells because you have to actually grow them for typically three to six weeks for the vein-to-vein time, so the time between taking the cells out of the patient and putting them back in. And during that period, there are a number of steps for activating and stimulating these T-cells that are also very complex and cumbersome. And the whole process ends up costing about 270K just for the manufacturing component for a player like Novartis. The drugs end up priced at you know, 470K. So that is a really big bottleneck where if you can reduce the amount of steps required to engineer the cells and make it more that you're taking the cells out, putting some nanoparticles on them, and then putting them back in, or there you know, are only one or two steps, you're looking at major costs and time savings across the whole industry. And then you can also use those techniques for in vivo therapies. So the delivery system itself is designed to be used in vivo as well. What would you say is the long-term vision of Ligandal? One is obviously to make gene therapies real, but is the cost factor also an important part in your strategy? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we want to take the amount of time required to confer some new genetic traits to a cell down to days. So we want it to be so easy to modify a cell either in a dish or inside the body that you can simply say what sequence you want and within a few days you have something that targets the right cell and delivers that sequence. The vision of the company is to be at the forefront of personalized medicine both through partnering and eventually through our own therapeutic development programs. But we're really staging how we go about that in order to validate the platforms for the right set of applications that give us long-term value for these personalized medicine approaches for really taking on aging, for doing things that aren't necessarily going to have 
the immediate market upside, but once you get the data sets, it's going to be very valuable. So we want to actually have sort of the zip codes and the addresses of the body mapped out so well that we can really quickly take on new applications at a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the time. That's really a great vision, and I do hope you guys achieve it. One, a general question would be that I know your company was founded in 2013, so CRISPR was already around then, but still it was not as big as it is right now. So when you saw this trend of you know CRISPR becoming even more popular, did that in any way impact uh, your strategy or the way you worked at Ligandal, or had you kind of already factored this in that gene editing tools are going to be big in the future? Well, we knew that the fields would blow up. The question was when and in which applications. So when we were starting a company and trying to explain what we were doing, you know, people didn't know what CRISPR was. They vaguely sometimes knew nanoparticles, but not in really a gene therapy context. And so kind of coupling those things was seen as speculative as opposed to a foregone industry conclusion that this is where it's going to go. So... I think it was really around 2016, 2017 that the market started to shift. We started to see gene therapies being approved in 2017. So suddenly, even something like viruses, which were in all sorts of clinical trials for gene therapy but weren't approved, were seen as, okay, this works. We know that we can use an adeno-associated virus for any number of gene therapy applications, and the FDA has shown precedent in approving it with a sparks blindness therapy, a Lysterna. But then the you know, oncology stuff also really took off. So CAR-T, where you're modifying T-cells to basically have targeting molecules for cancers, that wasn't mainstream until the last few years. So even though there were a number of companies like Kite and Juno developing these programs, or even Selectus developing treatments for leukemia, the amount of patients that had been dosed was very small. Now we have their first approval. We have a, n- a number of things that are getting fast-tracked and moved through different clinical trials. So it's less speculative, and there's now this big demand for delivery systems where people have established a precedent that you can do it. But now it's a question of can you do it faster, can you do it cheaper, can you do it for more applications? Right. And so lastly, we always end with a fun question. If you woke up tomorrow and... You couldn't be the CEO of Ligandal, but you could be the CEO of some other biotech company. So which one would that be? Like any promising ones that you would would be your second choice? Oh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'd probably kick Paul out of the spot at some ago. <laughs> okay, perfect. I think he would take it as a compliment, hopefully. <laughs> Great. Love you, Paul. Cool, yeah. Thanks a lot for joining us today. This was a really great and informative episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.